Nice to see all of you here this morning. If you've got a Bible with you, let's go to the book of Genesis as we've been doing each week. And we're going to be in uh, Genesis 31 and 32 today. Uh, what we're really going to be doing is driving towards an event that happens uh, near the end of, verse, of, of chapter 32. And so I will uh, be summarizing some things leading up to that point. But those are the two chapters that are going to encompass the things that we're going to think about this morning. If you're here this morning and you don't have a Bible, uh, there are Bibles in the chair racks there in front of you if you want to grab one of those. And if you don't know where to find things in the Bible, uh, Genesis is the very first book. And so if you start making your way forward in the book of Genesis, you should get to chapters 31 and 32 fairly quickly. There's this uh, conversation that the elf queen Galadriel has with Frodo in the Lord of the Rings books, in the, in the second book. Uh, okay, I've already seen the Lord of the Rings people cheering. And you're contractually obligated as a pastor to use some sort of illustration from the Lord of the Rings every six months or you lose your license. And I'm in danger of having mine lost, so we're going to go with it. But there's this conversation Galadriel is having with Frodo in this book, and she is describing the elves' ages and ages and ages long battle with the powers of darkness. And in this conversation, she describes it this way. She says, through the ages of the world, we have fought the long defeat. Isn't that an interesting turn of phrase? And this wasn't just a throwaway phrase for Tolkien that he just happened to write this sentence. This exact phrase shows up in his personal correspondence in his collected letters. In a letter to someone, he wrote this, I do not expect history, and now he's referring not to the fantasy history that he wrote, but to human history that's real. He said, I do not expect history to be anything but a long defeat. What does he mean by a long defeat? Well, a long defeat in the thinking of Tolkien is a losing battle. It is an inevitable defeat, whereas, whereas people in our day seem to conceive of history as this, this never-ending movement that constantly produces progress to take us further and further and farther and better, Tolkien saw it as a devolution in many ways as the world in some sense becomes darker. A long defeat is a losing battle. And this is the story of Jacob's life. His life has been one of constant conflict. His life has been one of constant conflict with others that began as he was being born, literally. But as you see, as you, as you trace, and as the Scriptures trace the, the narrative arc of Jacob's life, we see that ultimately, Jacob's conflict is not just with the human beings that he happens to be around. J Jacob's ultimate 
conflict is a struggle with God Himself. And this struggle with God that Jacob is experiencing is, in the words of Tolkien, a long defeat. It is a losing battle because ultimately God is going to win. By the end of chapter 30, which we looked at last week, Jacob has been growing increasingly frustrated with his uncle Laban. Laban has repeatedly changed his wages. He has tricked him. He has deceived him. He has manipulated him. He has tried to hold Jacob down and keep Jacob in his place. And finally, Jacob has reached his breaking point. And at the beginning of chapter 31, and in verse 3, Jacob gets a word from the Lord, a green light, that it is now okay for him to leave Laban's employment and return back to his homeland. And so Jacob gathers his now large family. Remember, if you were with us last week, we looked at, at all the building blocks of this family and how it came together. And this, he gathers this big, dysfunctional family together, and he has a family meeting with them, and he goes through the litany of all his grievances with his wife's father. See, in-law problems are nothing new. He goes through this long list of grievances with them, lists all the things that, that Laban has done, and then suggests that it is now time for them to leave. And his family says, you know what, you're right, you've got a point, it's time for us to go. But Jacob is going to resort to deception yet again in the way he leaves, because he is going to wait to leave until his uncle Laban is away on business. That business is sheep shearing season. And Laban is there with, with the group that is shearing their flocks. Uh, and this is a three days journey away for them to do this. And Jacob realizes this is his opportunity to gather everybody up and to head out so that Laban can't argue with him. Laban can't try to stop him. Laban can't do anything to try to deceive him. And so they basically make a run for it. And when, when Laban returns home and finds that his daughters and his grandchildren and his son-in-law, they're all gone, he is hot. And he gathers a company of his people and he rides off after them. And the language that the Bible uses to describe the way that he rides off after them and approaches them is actually military language. Okay, he has... He's suited up, and he's going to go take back what he thinks belongs to him. Jacob, uh, uh, the Lord appears to Laban and tells him that he's not to do anything of the sort. And so they get together in chapter 31, and they have this big, long confrontation in which Jacob rehearses all of the, all of the, the things that he believes his uncle has done Laban argues with him. They go back and forth and back and forth. And finally, by the end of the chapter, they've reached a peace agreement and decided to go their separate ways. So now, Jacob, in chapter 32, is finally ready to make his way home. But there's just one problem. And do you remember what that problem is? 
That's right. Uh, the guy that wants to murder him happens to be at home. And so this is not a, this is this is not a an entirely happy turning towards home. The Bible tells us in verse 7 of chapter 32 that Jacob is greatly afraid and distressed. He's going to be going home and there have been a lot of years that have have passed since he ran for his life and there's been a lot of water under the bridge at this point, but it's not like he can FaceTime back home to see what's going on. It's not like they have lots of communication with what's going on back home. So he doesn't know what his brother's disposition actually is towards him. He doesn't know whether or not Esau can hold a grudge as long as he can. And because he is greatly afraid and distressed, he is so greatly afraid and distressed that he actually prays. He does what a lot of us do. Call out when we need help. I've got things under control until things aren't in control. And then I need a divine assist. And so Jacob calls in a divine assist. And he reminds the Lord in this prayer, in verses 9 to 12, I believe, in this chapter, he reminds the Lord that God has passed down the promises that he'd given to his grandfather Abraham and his father Isaac. He reminds God that those promises are his now. And he asks for God's blessing and he asks for God's help as he's got to go back and face his brother. But even though we see this little sliver of dependence on the Lord because he is so greatly afraid and distressed, Jacob is still the strategist. And the chapter tells us that while he's praying, he's also doing all sorts of other maneuvers to make sure that he minimizes any losses that he might experience. And so one of the things that he does is he divides his family up into two companies so that if Esau decides to attack one of the companies, he can still make a run for it and save half his family. The other thing that he does is he divides up this enormous gift for, uh, of livestock, which is, which is the wealth and trade of the day. He divides up this enormous gift of livestock to give to Esau and he divides it into three waves so that as, as they're approaching home, Esau receives his, the first wave of gifts. And then maybe he receives the second wave of gifts. And then he receives the third wave of gifts. And by the time he actually meets his lousy brother, maybe those gifts will have softened him up a little bit. Now there are people who have commented on this passage that believe that it's, it's possible that, that Jacob is trying to repay what he has stolen in his father's blessing. All of the goods and livestock that, that would have accrued to Esau, he's trying to give back out of his own wealth. But he's, so, we, so we got Jacob, we got him strategizing, we got him praying, trying to cover all of his bases so that he can return home Safely. When the night comes, the Bible tells us that he crosses the ford of the Jabbok River and he sends everybody off to execute the plan. 
so that he's alone. And let me just pause right there and let you know that the Jabbok River is a tributary of the Jordan River. And so if you want to know, if you want to keep your eye on what biblical foreshadowing are we seeing here, we've got the nation of Israel in Jacob at the Jordan River about to enter into the promised land. Does that ring any bells? This is going to happen again. But that's just a, a little digression. Jacob is at, is at the Jabbok River. He sent everybody off. And Jacob now, finally, is alone. At least he thinks he's alone. Now, what follows next is pretty strange. If you're there in Genesis chapter 32... Let's pick up our reading together in verse 24. Genesis 32, verse 24. This is what the Word of God says. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God, you've wrestled with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And There he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel. Whenever you see that word El, it's the Hebrew word for God. We saw that word Bethel, house of God. Peniel means face of God. Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. There you go. The story is told so briefly that you walk out of that story oftentimes having more questions than answers. I mean, when you think about this wrestling, Jacob has a wrestling match, and there are hardly any details given. Like, where did this guy, I want to know, well, where did this guy come from, and how did this start? Did he come up from him behind? Was he approaching? What is Jacob thinking? Is he thinking this is somebody coming from Esau? What, what, what is going on here? The Bible does not answer any of those questions. What we can say for sure is that even though Jacob is wrestling with a man, ultimately he is wrestling with God. We can say that because as the realization 
dawns on Jacob of what exactly is happening during this midnight wrestling match. He names the place Peniel, face of God. Because I said, I, he says, I've seen the face of God, and you could insert the word somehow, lived. Jacob is wrestling with God. Another thing that we can say with, with pretty good certainty is that we know that even though Jacob is more than a match for this man in the fight, he's really no match. I mean, as you're reading through this, it's using the language of talking about Jacob prevailing. But remember, we know he's wrestling with God. The God who has to stoop to see the tower that they're building to heaven. The God who is able to, to fill the earth with a flood. The God who have, could have appeared in any form he wanted to wrestle with Jacob. God could have appeared in the form that's more closely resembling the rock. But he doesn't do that. He's wrestling with a normal-sized person. What we see here is God letting Jacob wrestle with him. And we see that when the time for the fight, when it's time for the fight to be over, the only thing that this man has to do in this wrestling match is just touch his hip to dislocate him. So you tell me who's more powerful in this situation. This was never really a fight. But what we see now when, when, when Jacob's hip is touched and it's dislocated, we see a now broken Jacob holding on to this man for dear life and begging him for a blessing. And so the man asks Jacob his name. And we could miss details like this. But this man asking Jacob his name is not asking for his name because he wants to know, well, well, who have I been wrestling with? When the man asks Jacob his name, he's, he's asking Jacob to say his name out loud. And what does Jacob's name mean? Well, it, it comes to mean deceiver. In fact, when, when he swindles Esau out of his father's blessing, remember what Esau said? Rightly, they've called you Jacob, for you're a deceiver. And so when the man asks Jacob for his name, he is not simply asking him to say the name that he is known by. What he is asking Jacob actually to do is to confess his nature. And then the man changes Jacob's name to Israel. El. Remember God? 
He strives with God, or God strives. And we're going to talk more about that name change in a couple of weeks when we get to chapter 35 because it's discussed there again. But you want to think about formative moments in people's lives. This is perhaps the most formative moment of Jacob's. This is a guy that's had a vision, a ladder with angels descending and ascending on it, and God at the top speaking to him. But God chooses this incident right here and says, this is such a pivotal, a pivot, pivotable. That's not a word. This is such a pivotal moment in your life. I'm going to change your name to reflect this moment. When, when, when Jacob had the vision, he named the place Bethel. When he has the wrestling match, God renames him Israel. Jacob then, who still hasn't quite learned his lesson, has the audacity to ask in return for his assailant's name. And his assailant basically says, I don't think you understand how this works. Me and you are not equals. But the man does pronounce the blessing that Jacob had begged for. And again, Jacob calls this place the face of God, for I have seen God face to face. And somehow my life has been delivered. So, Jacob's been preparing to return home. As he prepares to turn, return home, and he considers the seemingly unbelievably staggering promises that God has given him, as he considers the threat to his own life based on his own deceptive actions in the past, in the person of his brother Esau, he is a man at the beginning of the passage who is clearly desperate for God's blessing, and he does receive that blessing. But first, he has to be broken. Because Jacob is heading out back to the promised land and he's already plotting and planning and scheming for how he's going to deal with the Esau factor. And God is going to bring him into that promised land and God is going to give him all that he promised him. But God cares about Jacob too much to let him think that he's going to figure and work all this out. He has been doing that his whole life. And it ends here. God wants to break Jacob once and for all of his self-sufficiency. And as the sun rises that morning and Jacob finds himself alone, he continues on his journey 
but he continues with a limp. A limp that he's going to carry throughout the rest of his days. Jacob was going to succeed. But the limp was a reminder that any successes he had were going to be the result of God's blessings, not his scheming. There's a truth here that I want us to see this morning, and this is a hard truth that if you might forgive the pun, you're going to have to wrestle with. but you are going to have to wrestle with it. The truth that I want us to spend a little bit of time thinking about this morning is this. God breaks those whom he blesses. God breaks those whom he blesses. We like Jacob, are on a journey with God. Every one of you is on a journey. Your life is moving forward, and you're on that journey with God. Sometimes the New Testament talks about your walk. We talk about your walk with God. You and I are on a journey with God, and our lives are kind of like Jacob's in a lot of ways. Now, hopefully, nobody here can say, I too accidentally married the wrong person and found out 24 hours later. I hope you haven't had that experience. But I want you to think about the long, circuitous, twisting path that your life's journey has taken you on. You've been everywhere. You've had all kinds of experiences. There have been all kinds of twists and turns in your story with God. And some of those twists and turns have been favorable And some of those twists and turns you have not been able to see as favorable. There have been places that you have been taken for years that you rather would not have been. There have have been all sorts of things that you thought were going to work out in a particular way and just at every turn it didn't turn out the way you expected. We've got Our vision for our life, right? You've got a vision for your life and the way you expect your life to go or the way you hope your life is going to go. And what we want as Christian people is we've got this vision that we're working with for our life and where we want it to go. We want God's blessing on it. So we basically have determined the direction. This is how I would like things to play out. And I would very much like it, God, if you would step in and do your thing and put your blessing on it 
so that my life can go according to my expectations. But what ends up happening is that because we want God's blessing on our vision, we engage in this sometimes long, protracted wrestling match with God. And here's the funny thing. We actually think sometimes that we're winning. Feels like I got him pinned. Because God lets us wrestle with him. But what's really happening, if you belong to Christ, What's really happening in these situations is a long defeat. Do you remember what a long defeat is? It's a losing battle. Our fight with God for our way is a losing battle. God does intend to bless you. But when he blesses us, he often has to break us. That breaking is bringing us to the end of ourselves so that we can move forward on that journey with Him in a new and dependent and submitted and surrendered way. That's what I mean when I say that God breaks those whom He blesses. Jacob's Jacob's literal wrestling with God is a metaphor for our own struggle in our journey with God. And there are two lessons that come from God's breaking that I want you to hear. And these are lessons that are personal to me. But things that we have to learn in the breaking. Here's the first. You must learn at some point that self-sufficiency is not strength. You've got to come to terms with the fact that self-sufficiency is not strength. This is particularly important for you to hear if you are with us this morning And you are young. Because one of the inherent problems with youth is we feel like we can. We feel like we're enough. We have boundless energy. Jacob spent his whole life thinking that he was running the show. 
Everything that he has done up to this point is lying and manipulating to make his life happen. And there is example after example after example of it. And Jacob has gotten to the point in his life where he actually thinks that he's in charge. Jacob is, a, in many ways, a self-sufficient man. And we can have that mindset too, can't we? One of the great sins that we struggle with is the sin of self-sufficiency. We actually believe that we're the ones quarterbacking our lives. We are Americans, after all, who have always believed that we have pulled ourselves up by our own bootstraps and that we've earned everything we have. That mindset, that, that mythology is woven into our cultural understanding of ourselves. But what if one of our prized cultural values is actually in direct opposition to what the Scripture teaches? In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, the Bible gives a principle that is being applied to the preaching of the gospel, but this principle is true universally and can be applied to anything. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 5, the Bible says, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. We're constantly looking for, for the source of our, of our sufficiency. And as we're constantly looking for that source of our sufficiency, we're constantly looking here. But what we need is actually entirely outside of us. It is something that must be received. Not something that can be earned or built through our own willpower. And when God breaks us, when He brings us to that point where we see that we are not enough, He is not doing that because He is mean-spirited with us. He is breaking us from our delusions of self-sufficiency. One of the most harmful things that God could continue to allow to happen in your life is to make you think or allow you to believe that you're actually doing it. And it's so hard for us to step away and realize that we're actually, we're actually not in charge of the show, that it takes a wrestling match with God in which we get injured to step back and say, wait a minute doesn't work like the way I thought it worked. If you think about the story, it's kind of crazy to think that Jacob spent the whole night wrestling with God. 
Yet I bet there are people here this morning, and Jacob's got nothing on you. You spent weeks, months, years wrestling with him. Because you want to be in control. Our delusions are persistent. And we love them. Because they make us feel safe. And so when God shatters our delusions, what he's really doing is shattering the illusion of safety to give us something more real. Now, like with Jacob, God may be letting you wrestle. But he is going to win. James Weldon Johnson was a politician, civil rights activist, diplomat, educator, author, poet, and Jacksonville native. Early 1900s. And he wrote a poem, the opening about the prodigal son, the opening lines of which go this way. Young man, young man, Your arms too short to box with God. I think he captured what happens here. If you have been wrestling with God, it's time to tap out. It's time to admit that you're not enough and that you will never be enough. But when we do tap out, we start tapping into a new way of living that gives us strength that we had never yet imagined was available to us. There's a second lesson we must learn from God's breaking. Not only must you learn that self-sufficiency is not strength, this is a strange one, But you must learn to love your limp. Here's our problem. We all want God's blessing, right? I don't think anybody here would say, I don't want God's blessing on my life. We all want God's blessing. Our problem is that we want the blessing without the breaking. We all want to live the blessed life. We just don't want everything that comes with it. God, I want your hand on my life, but I want to determine when and how. And I want you to go with my plan about how this ought to look. But that's not how it works. When Jacob left the ring early that morning, he left with a limp and he would have that limp the rest of his life as a reminder of that night. Many of us have a limp from wrestling with God. 
and that journey. And here's how I'm going to define that limp. A limp is a limitation. Many of us have a limp, a limitation that prevents us from being everything that we think we could be. That limp could be a physical limitation. It could be a mental limitation. It could be an opportunity that others have had that you haven't. It could be your family upbringing. It could be a difficult experience that fundamentally changed you forever. I don't know what your limp is. I bet you do. I bet the very first thing that comes to your mind is one of the, in one of those categories. That thing is as if I didn't have this holding me back, I could be this. Now, let me be very clear. I am not suggesting that you need to learn to love the thing itself. Some of us have had tragic things done to us by others. What I am suggesting is that we learn to love the dependence our limitations create And I know that sounds so incredibly against everything we've ever been told, but as hard as it might be to believe, that limitation can become your greatest source of strength if you stop fighting God over it. You're only able to see what it prevents you from doing. But if you could see past what it prevents, you could see the world of possibility it produces because of the power it provides. So once again, the Apostle Paul is instructive for us. There was something in the Apostle Paul's life that he refers to in 2 Corinthians as his thorn in the flesh. And many of people have tried to figure out or speculated on what this thorn in the flesh was. And God in His wisdom chose to not let us know what the thorn in the flesh was so that it could stand for a whole host of things. And the Apostle Paul pleads with the Lord. It says, I pleaded with the Lord three times that He would remove this thorn from me. The Apostle Paul is looking at this thorn. He's looking at this limitation that prevents him from doing what he would like to do And I'm sure in his prayers to God, he's saying, Lord, if you would remove this, look what I could do. And God lovingly says, no. And we can't conceive of why God would lovingly say no with the limitations that he has placed in our lives as we beg for him to remove them. And so we assume, well, God must be mad at me or... He must be a jerk or whatever. But it's an act of love. And God gives Paul an answer. In verse 9 of chapter 12, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. 
So you're looking for self-sufficiency. If I could get to the spot where I don't have limitations and so I can be the person that I want to be, that I think I have the capability of being. He said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So Paul says, therefore I will boast the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. He, do, he says, I'm content with them. He doesn't say, and so now those persecutions and those calamities, they don't hold me back anymore. He doesn't say those persecutions and calamities don't hurt anymore. He doesn't say those things don't bring about grief anymore. He says, but now I'm content with them. And why would you be content with something like that, Paul, when they hold you back from being so much more? Because he says, for when I am weak, then I'm strong. And this is the freedom that you could experience this morning if you'd stop fighting for a minute. And embrace the limp. 